let's continue on in our study of this uh, confession. It's just been a really great teaching tool for, for us and for lots of God's people through the years. Thankful for it. I mentioned before, I reiterated last week, that there are kind of four distinctive elements about this particular confession of faith. And I just chose it because I, I think there's that uh, I find a great deal of agreement with this confession. I hopeful, hope it's, it's at least a help for us in our ongoing discussions as a church. Um, but one of the distinctions of this confession is that it's reformed in its view of the law. And I'm, I'm trying to unpack what that means. Um, that, pro- that one distinctive is actually probably the most controversial thing among Calvinistic Baptists today. The, this particular, the view of the law that's spelled out here in this confession. And uh, maybe even as we've read the confession, or as we continue to read it um, on the law, that you'll have some questions that come to your mind. Uh, but I want to at least have this as a, as a point of reference um, that uh, we can continue to, to dig into what God's Word says. I do want to take some time to enlarge and nuance some of the things in the confession, um, and I would like to do that. Uh, but as I was thinking about it this week, I realized that the, the last week's chapter, which was 19 on the law, and then chapters 20, 21, and 22, they really kind of all build together. And here's the way it works. 19 was about the law itself. 20 continues the theme of the law as a covenant of works and talks about the law and its relationship to the gospel. And then it talks about the necessity of special revelation as to oppose to the law of nature that was described in chapter 19. So it continues to build a little bit. And then chapter 20 does more. I'm sorry, 21 does more when it talks about Christian liberty. And Christian liberty regards the ceremonial law which is something that came up from chapter 19. And also it regards legalistic additions to the law, like the Pharisees made. And it regards a Christian's relationship to the law. So all of that's in 21. And then 22 finally comes down and enlarges on one specific law. And that is the fourth um, commandment, the commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so chapter 22 then just enlarges on the doctrine of the Sabbath as the writers of the confession understood it. And really, I'll say it this way, I think the Sabbath is important to talk about in terms of what the confession says, because the Sabbath is kind of, what you think about the Sabbath is kind of a test case of how you think about the law of God in general. So I hope these these couple of sessions will sort of build on each other, and then I'd like to come at the end of that and uh, make some clarifying comments on uh, the whole subject of the law. So, But really this afternoon, all I'd like to do is go through these next couple of chapters, 20 and 21, and uh, see what uh, they have to say. Good? Chapter 20 in the Confession is titled, The Gospel and the extent of its grace. Paragraph 1 deals with the gracious 
provision of the gospel. If I was going to give a title to paragraph one, it would be that. The gracious provision of the gospel. Let's take a look at it together. Ready? Because the covenant of works was broken by sin and unable to confer life, God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel in its substance was revealed and made effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. All right, so we see right here in the beginning of this paragraph that it makes reference to something that was identified or described in the last chapter, which was the covenant of works. And if you remember... That just simply is a, is a theological description, like the term Trinity, that theologians give to the arrangement that was between God and Adam in the garden. Remember, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and this, there was this arrangement, right? There's all these trees. You can eat from all of the trees, but don't eat from this one. I want you to cultivate the garden. I want you to guard it from, from evil and... If you obey me, you will what? If you obey me, you will live. And there was that tree of life that held out the promise of glory for them. Glorification, eternal life. But if you disobey me, you will surely die. Right. And of course, that's the statement that was spoken. The other was implied, but it's all there in the garden, including these sacramental elements like the trees and so forth. So there was, that's why sometimes theologians call it a covenant. There are these covenantal elements all there right in the garden. We'll probably, maybe we'll come back to that, I don't know. But um, that was the relationship. Now, of course, Adam and Eve did not keep the covenant with God, right? They broke that covenant, they disobeyed, and they brought death upon themselves and upon all of us for all have sinned. And now that arrangement is unable to confer life. Because, because remember, the, the implications of obedience to God are, are these. That if you, if you disobey God in one point, you've disobeyed the God of all the points. And so, as the confession says, what God demanded in terms of in terms of a covenant of works, what God demanded was perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience, right? And that's what humankind failed to render to God. So there is now an inability to ever attain eternal life through that covenant of works. That is, according to the arrangement that God had with Adam and Eve. We've all, we've all fallen. Now we're fallen creatures. So what did God do? He made a, as the confession says, he made a promise. Right? Anybody know where that promise is found? What chapter and verse? This is a little trivia question. Genesis, right in the beginning of Genesis somewhere. It's in the first few chapters. Three, got the right chapter, verse 15. Nailed it. Yeah, Genesis 3.15. Sometimes that's called the protein the protevangelium, the first 
Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Um, that statement, that promise was this. I like to say it in these words. God will do for you what you failed to do for yourself. Or God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself because you will not, you failed, you cannot and will not do for yourself. Which is that God would send the seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. God would eliminate evil in the way that man failed to do. Man was to guard that garden, to resist evil, to live by every word that came out of the mouth of God, but he failed. This seed would do what the man, Adam, failed to do. That was the promise. And that promise, this confession says, was the essence of the gospel. That was the gospel right there in seed form. Say, when did the gospel start? It started right after sin, right? And I mean, in the mind of God, as it were, it's, you know, it was implied in in all of the creation, the purpose of creation. But uh, in terms of God expressing the gospel, you have it right there, Genesis 3.15. So it says that that promise was, quote, made effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. In other words, believing that promise, the Old Testament saints became children of God. They were saved by belief in what? In that promise, which the confession identifies as the gospel. In essence, that was the gospel. So if you want to ask the question, how were Old Testament people saved? The answer is by the gospel. Right? They believed the gospel. That was for their salvation and it is for ours. Now that, now that gospel continued to be revealed to a greater and greater degree as the scriptures continued to unfold, but it was there in the beginning. Paragraph 2 then talks about the necessity of the gospel. The necessity of the gospel. It says... This promise of Christ and of salvation through Him is revealed in the Word of God alone. In other words, through special revelation. That's how we know the Gospel. It goes on to say, the works of creation and providence. Now, stop there for a second. If the Word of God is special revelation, what is creation and providence? What do we call that? sometimes general, general revelation. I think that's what some people were trying to say. General revelation. Now it says, the works of creation and providence, when assisted only by the light of nature, do not reveal Christ or His grace through Him, even in a general or obscure way. In other words, just the law of nature... um, the, the, the work of the law written on the heart, Romans 2, the conscience of man, uh, the impression in his soul that there is a God and that he's very great. This testimony that man sees of God in all of creation, that is not sufficient for man's salvation. That testimony, um, I mean, that testimony is universal. The Bible says there's no speech or language where, where that testimony is not made known, right? So all people everywhere see and know the testimony of God. But Romans chapter 1 says that all people everywhere do what with that testimony? They 
suppress it. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All have sinned. None seeks after God, right? That's where we are apart from grace. So there is general revelation to all people. Everybody resists it. And because they do that, that is enough. Biblically, that is seen as justification for their condemnation. No one who is a sinner, who is eternally judged by God, is judged unrighteously. Everyone's judgment is justified. Not justified in any sense outside of God, but justified in accordance with God's own character. And, uh, and that's, what, that's part of the, uh, what general revelation does. But the confession is saying that men need to hear the gospel to be saved. And uh, it goes on in this passage to say, um, much less, you see where we are? Much less. Much less are those without the revelation of him in the promise or gospel enabled to attain saving faith or repentance by seeing these works of God, that is the works of God in nature. And of course, one of the passages of Scripture that the confession cites is Romans chapter 10. This is one of the passages that always comes to my mind. Paul says, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless uh, someone preaches? You know, they, they, they communicate them to them the saving grace of God in Christ. And how will they believe unless they be sent, right? So there's this need for the sending of gospel ministers to proclaim the gospel of Christ for people to be saved. And that brings us to the third paragraph because people say, well, what about those who have never, what? Those who've never heard. And so paragraph three, you could title this way, the sovereignty of God in the spread of the gospel. The gospel, verse paragraph three, has been revealed to sinners in various times and in different places, along with the promises and precepts describing the obedience it requires. Let's stop there for a second. What is the obedience that the gospel requires? In in two words, it's repentance and faith. Repentant faith in Christ. So it says that the gospel has been preached in different times at different places, okay, including the 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 response, the, the required response to the gospel. It goes on to say the particular nations and individuals who are granted this revelation are chosen solely according to the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. And this choice does not depend on any promise to those who demonstrate good stewardship of their natural abilities because, in fact, those people don't exist um, apart from, from, from grace, the grace to respond. It doesn't depend on that. Um, These natural abilities that are based on common light received apart from the gospel, no one has ever done this, nor can anyone do so. That's just what I've said. And of course, it's a fact in history that not all people at all times and in all places have had access to the saving message of Jesus Christ. And of course, in one sense, that's a very 
sad thing to hear because we can imagine ourselves in that situation, can't we? What if the gospel had never come to us? But it is true, and the confession asks, well, why is it true? And the only answer is the sovereign choice of God. It's, there, it's like I said this morning, there's no human explanation for God's demonstrations of His grace. It wasn't that something in us called out for that and demanded that. Rather, God just freely bestows it according to the overflowing goodness of His nature. And where He does not bestow it, He is not unjust in any respect. So once again, the confession is holding up the uh, sovereignty or the freedom of God, would be a better way to say it, the freedom of God in making the gospel known. And of course, several passages, I mean, there you could go to all kinds of passages, but uh, for example, Psalm 147, the end of that psalm, uh, the, the psalmist says, God has revealed Himself to Israel. He has not done so with all of the other nations, but He has revealed Himself to us and to our children. Uh, John chapter 11, verses 25 and following, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And then in Acts chapter 16, Paul, remember that he was actually, he was one of those that was sent to take the gospel. And in Acts 16, it tells about how he intended to bring the gospel to a certain region, and he was prevented. And then he turned and he intended to go in a different direction and go to another region. And it says the Holy Spirit prevented him. And he ended up going in in a completely different direction. And what do we chalk that up to? And the answer is the Bible just doesn't say that it has anything to do with us. It is just the sovereignty of God, the freedom of God to show mercy where he will. And that's what the confession acknowledges. The The end of that paragraph says this, Therefore... In every age, the preaching of the gospel to individuals and nations has been granted in widely varying degrees of expansion and contraction according to the counsel of the will of God. So God is free. God is free in how and when He shows His grace. And of course, as Christians, we should feel the the imperative of His command, right? Go out and make disciples of all the nations. And when God does send someone and He moves us to help send someone and they go to a particular place, that was the freedom of God to show those people grace and uh, make the gospel known to them. So we get to be a part of God sovereignly working out His purposes in the world. That's why missions is so important, um, so essential. Last paragraph, paragraph 4. And you could title this one this way. If paragraph 3 was about the sovereignty of God in the spread of the gospel, paragraph 4 is about the sovereignty of God in response to the gospel. And here's what that paragraph says. The gospel is the, is the only outward means of revealing Christ and His saving grace. And it is abundantly sufficient for that purpose. Right. So there's, there's a good place to stop just for a second. The gospel is necessary. It's the only outward means of revealing the gospel, of, of revealing Christ, revealing saving grace. You, you, you know, you have to, they have to hear the gospel. 
but it's also sufficient. It is the sufficient outward means. In other words, the gospel is all they need. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, right? The gospel is sufficient for salvation. And yet, it goes on to say, yet, to be born again, brought from death, uh, or brought to life, or regenerated, those who were dead in trespasses must also have an effectual, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in every part of their souls to produce in them a new spiritual life. Without this, no other means will bring about their conversion to God. So here, of course, is the, is the statement about the inward means of grace. The outward means is the preaching of the gospel. And we shouldn't believe that people will be saved unless we preach the gospel. The inward means is the convincing work, the conviction work of the Holy Spirit to testify to the truth of these words, to bring them to life in the hearers. And of course, that is essential as well. So it's so that's why there's such a big emphasis on what? Word and spirit. Those two things are um, always together in the Scripture where God works, word and spirit. So bottom line is the work of the law in people's hearts, that is in their consciences, is not sufficient. The gospel must be preached and the Holy Spirit must work in order for salvation to come. All right, then uh, paragraph 21, or chapter 21. So any questions or comments so far? Anyone want to throw something out there? All right, chapter 21, Christian liberty. Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And this you know, again, is still building on the in this four-chapter four section on the law, right? Because the Bible says we are not under what? Not under law. So what does that mean? Well, that's what this chapter is talking about, Christian liberty or liber- and liberty of conscience. So number one, paragraph one, you can th- you can think of this as liberty as the gift of the gospel. Paragraph one, the liberty of Christ, excuse me, the liberty that Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel is found in these things. What is, what is the liberty that Christ has purchased for us? Number one, freedom from the what? Freedom from the guilt of sin. Number two, from the condemning wrath of God. Number three, from the severity and curse of the law. And it'll expound on that more later. It goes on to say that it also includes their deliverance from this present evil age, bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, the suffering of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, freedom from everlasting damnation. All of these are aspects of the liberty that Christ has brought us into. And then it says, in addition, it includes their free access to God, that's Romans 5, their ob- and their obedience to God, that's Romans 6. Because how does Romans 6 start? 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. The grace of God, the liberty that God has, Christ has bought for us, includes our obedience to Him as His sons, as God's sons, not from slavish fear, this is Romans 8, but from a childlike love and willing mind. All of that is Romans 8. We are now sons of God. We obey Him from the heart. God works in us so that uh, we, we obey Him. And the last part of the paragraph says this, All these liberties were also enjoyed in their essence by believers under the law. So talking about Old Testament saints. These were their blessings as well. But it says under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded. So how is that? What does this expansion of Christian liberty look like under the New Covenant? Three things. First, they are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish congregation was subjected. So that goes back to the idea that the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. It's not obligatory for Christians today. We're not obligated to keep those Jewish feasts or to offer the the animal sacrifices or the things along that line. Secondly, this liberty is further expanded in that they have a greater confidence of access to the throne of grace. Remember the whole Old Testament had this imagery of being kept out of the holy place. And in Christ, that curtain is ripped from top to bottom. The Bible says, a way made for us to enter into the holy place. The third one listed here is that they have a fuller supply, a fuller supply of God's free spirit than believers under the law usually experienced. That is, Old Testament saints. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit was active. He was at work in saving people in the Old Testament as in the New, right? They experienced the call of God, the internal effectual call. They experienced regeneration. But there was a far greater outpouring, is what the writers are saying. There's a far greater outpouring and distribution of the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant that comes in history when? At Christ's ascension, enthronement, And what happens when He is enthroned? He gives gifts unto men, right? He pours out the Spirit upon all flesh along with those gifts of the Spirit for the evangelizing now of the nations. And under the Spirit's unique outpouring and the the filling of them for the work of the Gospel, the Gospel goes out like crazy, uh, like never before. So they, they, they're looking at passages like John chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says he said this about the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that he was talking about, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given. Well, of course, that's a... You know, the Spirit had come in some senses, but not like this, not in this end-time fullness. Why had the Spirit not yet come? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
the outpouring of the Spirit, the writers see as a part of the fullness of the new covenant, part of the liberty and freedom of the gospel uh, unleashed in new covenant times. And then paragraph two, we have Christian liberty as a defense against legalism. Christian liberty as a defense against legalism. Paragraph two, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way either contrary to his word or not what? Or not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commandments out of conscience is actually a betrayal of the true liberty of conscience. Now, any idea what that paragraph was probably focused on, what it was thinking about, what the these people not too long after the Reformation had in mind? I think this is undoubtedly a reference to the Catholic Church and to the, the Catholic Church's habit of prescribing man-made laws as if they were the Word of God. Man-made feasts and fasts and holy days and doctrines and saints and sacraments and things like that, that that really had no biblical warrant. And the the confession is saying that these commandments, so-called commandments, should not in any way bind the conscience of Christians. Christians have a liberty, a freedom from such things. And the passage that they cite is Colossians chapter 2 and verses 20 and following. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations, um, regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used? And look at the last line, according to human precepts and traditions. Of course, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for doing just that, didn't he? You are teaching as the word of God the commandments of men. And to these people, and I think rightly so, that they viewed that that's exactly what the Catholic Church was doing in their day, putting as the commandments of God the precepts of men. goes on to say in that paragraph that requiring, down toward the end of the paragraph, requiring implicit faith or absolute and blind obedience to the church, that is. That destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. And of course, again, that was uh, a concern with the Catholic tradition, which basically said, hey, put your trust in the church. Believe what the church hierarchy tells you, just implicitly, not necessarily because you believe it's warranted by Scripture. Just believe it because the church said. And um, the, uh, the writers of this confession and other confessions are saying that is, uh, that is not, uh, we, are, we are free from that in Christ. And the last paragraph, paragraph three, this speaks of liberty not as a defense against legalism, which is paragraph two, but in paragraph three, this is liberty that is an antidote for license or licentiousness. That's kind of the other pitfall that you can fall into. Well, Christian liberty means that you can what? Live any way you want. 
So, paragraph three. Those who use Christian liberty as an excuse to practice any sin or nurture any sinful desire pervert the main objective of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction, and they completely destroy the purpose of Christian liberty, which they'll come to in a minute. This is really arguing against what's sometimes called antinomianism, right? Anti-law. People who say, um, you know, now we're free. We can do what we want. And honestly, the Catholic Church said, hey, that's what you guys are doing. You're telling people that their salvation is all in Christ and not in what they do. Ultimately, you're giving them a free pass to live any way they want, and that's what they'll do. And, and they, the, the reformers and those who follow in their footsteps were very keen to say that is not Christian liberty. Christians don't do that because they're changed people. Uh, <clears throat> the passage, uh, one of the passages that they cite is Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. We went through this in Galatians, right? Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So this is no excuse to live. This is against the purpose of Christian liberty, which is stated then in the next line. The purpose of this Christian liberty is that we, having been delivered from the hand uh, hands of all our enemies, may what? That we may serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. Here's the whole point of Christian liberty. You have been liberated from the chains of sin that shackled you before you were unable to please God. You were enchained. You were bound. Now you've been set free in order to serve God. You've been free from one master in order to serve a new master. Not out of slavish fear, but out of childlike love. Right? This is the gospel. Um, this is what the, the scriptures bear out in, in so many ways. If you had never been set free from this, you could never serve him. But it is a, a service that we enter into with, with great joy. Um, Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Just go through this passage. I think you know it. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. He goes on to say this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you say, here I am, master, I'm yours. I will do what you want. Whoever you do that to, you actually are his slave. You've just proven whose slave you really are. If you do that to the flesh, you're just proving that you're still a slave of the flesh. So don't let there be anybody who says, well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm set free now from the gospel. I'm forgiven. God will forgive me if I sin. So I'm just going to give myself over to the flesh. No, you just showing that you are a slave to the flesh. He says, do you not know that you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to life, uh, which leads to righteousness, excuse me. Um, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, 
have become slaves of righteousness. And of course he adds, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation. You're not, you're not, you know, you are free. This is not a slavery in the same sense that your slavery to sin was. And he goes on to try to describe the difference in this new slavery in chapter 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous... Here's, here's the purpose of this. Deliverance, right? What's the purpose? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be what? Might be ignored by us? No, might be fulfilled in us. Us, that is, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because what does the Spirit do? He works in us lives that are in accord with the will of God, the revealed will of God in His moral statutes. He goes on to say, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Then he says, you, however, are not in the flesh. And so you keep the law from the heart, not merely as slaves, but now you keep it out of love. You keep it as sons. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into sin, to fall back into fear, excuse me. Fear of the wrath of God because you're enslaved to sin. You do not receive the spirit of slavery that says, okay, if you don't measure up, if you don't, if you don't present to God personal, perfect, exact, and entire obedience, you will come under the wrath of God. We're free from that. We're not in slavery any longer, but now you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what does a son want to do with regard to his father's will? He wants to do it. And so your life may end up looking like you're, you're, you're under the law in one sense. You're, you're keeping the law, but you're doing it out of this spirit of being a child of God. I'll close with this illustration. Charles Bridges, I mentioned him last week. I ended last week with a quote by him. Um, he uses this illustration, which I think I've used in church before, that law and love are sometimes pitted against each other as if we were under the law, and now we have nothing to do with the law, now we just have love. And he said, really, here's the way they work. It's kind of like a those old-timey, Pocket watches, the kind that you wind up. I don't know if anybody even has those anymore. Even even wrist watches, we used to wind them up. Remember back in the day, there were springs inside, and, the, and that spring got more and more tension, and it was the tension in the spring that was the impetus to drive the gears of the watch. But it was the gears of the watch that kept the spring from just going all undone in one fell swoop. It was released little by little, by little, second by second, probably too fast, um, in, as, as the gears went along, right? And, and in, in one sense, he's saying like the law are, is like those gears. 
that they show us, they, they regulate what love looks like. Because you talk to people all the time and you say, if you just say, hey, love God and love your neighbor, well, that looks like all kinds of sin to them. I mean, especially love your neighbor. That just means whatever I think it means. So what does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, the law shows you. It regulates that. But for a Christian, where does that come from? That comes out of love. Love, true love, spirit-wrought love for God, first and foremost. And love for others, and especially those who are in the household of faith. That drives everything. That's the driver. It's not like, it's not a, a slavish fear, but is driven out of love for God, true faith and love for the Lord. And that's really where this confession is going with that. Um, so this is, uh, again, the continuing unfolding of the law and all of its implications, and uh, hope, hopefully it's, it's helpful.